Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Thoughts from a Page podcast and Top Shelf at Merrick Library podcast for another special episode with your two favorite hosts, Cindy Burnett and me, Carol Antak. We're joining forces this time to bring you our interview with author Haley Scrivener for her debut crime novel, Dirt Creek. Hello, Thoughts from a Page listeners and Top Shelf at Merrick Library listeners. I'm Cindy Burnett, and welcome to our special episode. Okay, so a little bit about our guest. Today's guest, Australian debut author Haley Scrivener, is a former director of Wollongong Writers Festival. She lives and writes on Darawal Country and has a PhD in creative writing for the University of Wollongong. Haley was awarded the 2019 Ray Cop ASA Fellowship for Young Writers for her novel about a young girl who goes missing from a small country town. The manuscript is shortlisted for the Penguin Literary Prize and won the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award. Author Anne Cleves calls Dirt Creek, this debut novel, a stunning debut. The book will be published in the U.S. this August, but if you're in Australia or Europe, please look for the book under the title Dirt Town. It's on shelves everywhere. Haley Scrivener, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Cindy, Carol Ann. I'm just so excited to be here. Okay, now that we have you, this is going to be very hard, but can you (laughs) tell us about Dirt Creek and give us the non-spoiler edition? Oh, absolutely. And I've become pretty good at avoiding spoilers. So he, he, we, he's hoping. So Dirt Creek is the story of Esther Bianchi, a young girl who doesn't make it home from school one day. It's also about what happens when you take one person out of, out of a sort of close-knit small community. And it's really about the fallout of, of what happens when, when someone is gone. So throughout the book, we hear from people like her best friend, Ronnie, Veronica, who is just convinced that she's going to be the one to bring her best friend home. There's also Lewis, a young boy who's got a big piece of my heart because he he sees something on the day that Esther goes missing, but he, for his own reasons, he's too afraid to come forward and really share with the police what he knows because that would involve revealing his own secret. There's the mother of the missing girl and poor Constance is kind of having the worst few days of her life, really. Not only is her daughter missing, but her life kind of really starts to come apart at the seams around her. 
And then there's my investigating officer, Detective Sergeant Sarah Michaels, who's a gay Sydney cop who who so comes from a big city and comes into this small community. And really her experiences and who she is set her up to be the one person that can kind of figure out what's happened in the town. And then, of course, last but not least, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, I have a kind of Greek chorus of children that really kind of, so if you're familiar with the idea of a Greek chorus, they they would come on and kind of uh, punctuate the action in a traditional Greek play. They'd say, this is where we're at, this is what's happening. And so for me, they run kind of like a spine through the book. So they open and close the book and they really tell us something about the, the bigger implications of, a, of, of this really, um, of a crime that happens and the, its effect on the, on the children of a small town. Yeah, so that's Dirt Creek. <laughs> well, I just absolutely loved it. The second that I saw the stunning cover and read about it, I was like, I must read this book, and it lived up to all of my expectations. As I was reading, I was so curious, what's your inspiration for the book? Well, I grew up in a small country town, and like many first-time writers, I found that I, I was trying to do so many things. You know, I was trying to write compelling characters and have intricate plot, and when you ground it in a place that you know really well, it sort of gives you, it gives you room to move or it at least makes you feel as if those details are to hand. And I would say that I left the small town where I lived when I was 12 and I don't think it's, I don't think it's a mistake or an accident that most of the children in my book level out at 12. You know, a mm. lot of the narration of my book comes from 12-year-old or younger. And so I think that town where I grew up really left a kind of psychic impression so I never tried to, to, you know, I never knew anyone who went missing. It's not a true account of something that happened in the place where I lived. But I, one thing I'm really proud about the book is I do think it's sort of um, soaked in this kind of rural childhood. And, and I was really interested in the ways that children have all these big emotions, but they kind of have less control and they have less, there's less they can do about it. Like we often think of childhood as quite an innocent time. But I think one thing the book does is really explore how much children understand and how much they feel about the events in their life and with very limited control over being able to do anything about it. Really something. And like Cindy says, just said earlier, you know, when we get the advanced copies for these books and yours just comes on our desk and we get them, it's just like you see that cover, you open it up and we were both just gone right down the path. I mean, it's really, really something. As we mentioned in your bio though, I do want to ask Dirt Creek starts out as an unpublished manuscript. And thankfully, here we are today with this just terrific crime debut. But I would love to know, did that story change much between the manuscript and the publication? Well, what was so fabulous about the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award is that when you were shortlisted, you got an in-depth editorial report. So I'm talking kind of a 10-page document where a professional editor had gone in and had a series of headings of things I might want to think about. And one of the really interesting things about that is she actually suggested taking the collective voice out, taking out the Greek chorus. And it really helped me go, okay, if someone can say that, then I haven't, I haven't done it properly. If it feels like something you can remove, then that's it. it and for me, I wanted it to be so enmeshed in, in the way the story was told. And so it's not until someone comes in with that outsider's view and really clearly articulates how they read the story that you can kind of sharpen and enmesh your own vision more deeply in this book that you've been sort of trying to write. Um, so I started the book as part of a PhD. And so I always had readers, I had support, I had feedback. But that report really felt like when I was able to get enough distance to make make some changes, make some structural changes. And I think that's when the book began. I didn't set out to write a crime book originally, but I realised 
when you have a police officer character and you you kind of have this mystery, I felt I owed it to the reader to unravel that perhaps in a more ultimately, hopefully more satisfying way. We're grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, it, it did change. It did change a lot. And but the the version that went to my agent and that was picked up, I didn't have an agent an agent until I'd done that manuscript development. And that was the version of the book that then got publishers here in Australia really excited. Um, and from there, obviously, it sold into the US and into the UK. Um, there are various translations in the work. So that's really exciting to feel like something that I always thought was a very Australian story, like a very weird story. You know, I had this collective of children and, and kind of just all these elements that I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure would have a broader appeal. But of course, when you delve into the really specific and the and you kind of write something that only you feel that that you feel that only you can write that it's it's amazing how that can then flip on you and become much more accessible to other people you know you mentioned the use of the greek chorus that choral narrative it's employed so remarkably here and it's so unsettling but it's such an effective use it really put me off my footing so to speak but i loved it talk about deciding to use that narrative voice in the book because there's so many different points of views but then we have this chorus and it's just so effective and how does that come to you as you're writing well it's it's interesting because and it can be a dangerous question because I did do my PhD on collective narration right so I, I set out with an interest in this style of narration and it's very unusual but there's there's lots of different ways you can kind of do it you can have a collective that are kind of main characters in the story and they're speaking together but they're also kind of in the events of the story. And while my the collective of children are very much embodied, you know, they have experiences, they see things in real life, what's most fun about them and what I think gives it sort of some of that eeriness that you're talking about is the sense that they often know things they shouldn't know, they have access to things that they couldn't have possibly seen. I kind of sometimes allow them to kind of hover above the action. And ultimately, I think when you do something strange, or something that's slightly more challenging for the reader, you really have to test yourself and make sure you're not doing that for the sake of kind of passing time, but that it actually gives the reader something that they couldn't get any other way. And so because of the nature of the revelation, because of how we really learn exactly what happened on the day that Esther went missing, I needed this collective who were going to have more access even than the kind of police officer character, because the police officer ultimately kind of figures out what happens. And that hopefully that's not a spoiler. I mean... I think that's a fair enough. That's what you're hoping will happen, right? But the children are really our viewpoint or our way into an aspect of the story that we couldn't get any other way. Yeah, I felt justified in leaving them leaving them in there, even after that initial feedback that they could go. I'm glad you went with your gut. <laughs> it was one of my favorite parts of the story. So I'm very glad you went with your gut on that. With respect to who tells the story, how did you decide, independent of the Greek chorus, who the four characters were going to be that relayed the story? That's a really excellent question, Cindy. And there was a, a dark night of the soul where I had a version of the book where it was told entirely from the point of view of the children. And this was a very early draft, but I took it to my PhD su supervisor, uh, Dr. Shady Cosgrove. She's an American author who lives actually just near me now. So, we, and we, um, she's my supervisor at the university. And she just kind of said, look, it's not working. I don't care about these people. There's no sort of way into the story. And I always had this idea that Esther would kind of be the hole at the middle of the book. And I, I, I never, she never speaks. We never hear from her, but I wanted us to care deeply about her. And I think sometimes where crime can fall short for me is that there's a body in the first pages and then you never, you don't necessarily remember who they were or what happened to them. 
And and I really wanted that not to be the case in, in my book. And so I began introducing characters kind of one by one as various ways of, of thinking about and looking at Esther so that we could have some sense of who she was. And so Ronnie, Veronica is the first character, and she's kind of the easiest character to write for me. She's very close to my kind of biography. She's sort of this chubby, know-it-all. She's very gullible. She's quite naive, but she really loves her friend. And she's sort of, she was a character that I really felt we could see Esther in a kind of loving way through her. Lewis was a character who'd always been in the book from a kind of plot level. I knew that there would be a boy who'd seen something but he was really a place to kind of put my own my own thoughts and tensions around growing up in a small country town, realizing that there was something that I didn't quite I didn't have the word queer yet, but I knew that 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 was something that was at play for me, and that kind of unease. I think, in realistic terms, it's sort of much more open and aggressive towards boys in a small country community like that. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea that Lewis would be grappling with that. And so he was also a character I really enjoyed writing. And then you've got Constance. I thought we have to hear from the mother of the missing girl. And then um, Detective Sergeant Sarah Michaels was quite a late addition, actually. And and that was one of the reasons I really didn't realise I was writing crime for a long time, because in my head she she kind of was there for, the, for more of a, a cold eye on the events. But, of course, the more time I spent with her, the more background I gave her, the more I kind of um, – she that now has an important part to play in the book as well. She really sparkles on the page. I mean, she really comes out and we're sort of following her along. I mean, each of the viewpoints is just extraordinary. I I don't know how you did it. So um, yay. And I can't wait for everybody (laughs) to read it. And the story itself, I am trying to stay completely spoiler free, but you do tackle social structures within this country rural community. And I will tell you that I did think, and I don't know if you guys have seen it in Australia, but there was a show here called Mayor of Easttown with Kate Winslet. Mm. And it really reminded me so much of that. Now, that setting isn't rural. Dirt Creek has that same sort of gritty feel to what's going on, the socioeconomic structure of the town and, you know, counting pennies and and can they get the twisties and all of the, you know, the food. A- By the way, the food aspects are amazing. <laughs> I did look up to see all of the different snacks that Ronnie was eating. So... You can tell I was hungry while I was writing this. <laughs> I think ice favos are for me. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a bit of a divisive um, cookie, I will say, the ice favo. You either love them or hate them because they have coconut. Um, I did do a care package for my um, American edi- editor at Flatiron of all the food that I'd mentioned so that she could try it. And it was a heavy package. By the time I'd sort of <laughs> assembled all of the different sort of nostalgic childhood foods, it was like, oh, okay, this. Yeah, there's some heft to this package. Yeah, I was ha- I was happy about all of that, seeing all that. But they're so conscious of, you know, buying off brand off brand goods and and products and all of that sort of thing. And so when I think of Dirt Creek now, I put it on the library shelves with like Jane Harper and Emma Viskich and Candace Fox and Wendy James, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you've heard that that you're you know that this is this. Um, I don't know what you call this genre that's coming out of Australia, crime, but it's it's so compelling and it's so cinematic. I don't know what your feelings are, what you think about putting being put into all of that group of people. Oh, well, of course, I can only be flattered to kind of be <laughs> mentioned in the same sentence as some of those names. And Jane Harper, I think in particular, really paved the way for a book like mine in the mm-hmm. US. I, I think she, I, I owe her a debt, not only for being a fabulous writer that really, I think, 
made it, it helped the rest of the world see that things can happen in Australian settings that are as dark and compelling and, and interesting and kind of complex as, as any other setting. But I will say I wasn't aware, I really didn't situate my book, as I said, in that sort of crime space. So, And I didn't, I remember reading Jane Harper's The Dry and going, oh no, because I was three <laughs> years into this kind of what would be a five-year project and just kind of going, oh dear, like I have been beaten to the punch. And then you 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 realise that any story worth telling, by the time it's kind of passed through you, will we'll have imprinted so much with things that only you would kind of notice and only you would say. So I really, I enjoy being in fellowship with those writers and I love reading those writers now. But I certainly wasn't someone who worked backwards from someone else's book. I, I kind of felt that this was the only book I could write at the time. I seemed to, when I wrote about my childhood um, and that space, interesting things were happening on the page. And so that's all any writer can do, right? It's sort of follow the I think Flannery O'Connor said, you know, you, you can choose what you write, but you can't choose what you make live on the page. And I really like that idea. I like that too. And we're talking about different things like the Australian food. It's fun to learn those things. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book. Oh, thank you. And I do, I think I, I was really lucky that there were very, there were not many changes that I had to make at all in either translation um, of like in t- for a UK audience or for a USA audience. So I, I got to keep everything that I, even things that I was like, are they going to know what I'm sort of talking about here? And I do, I think any reader can enter a story and, and sort of, um, as long as it's not important for the flow of the plot, I think it can be nice to kind of go, oh, I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, but I can kind of get it from context. Right. Like looking up Tim Tams because I had to know yeah. what that was too. And I thought- Well, you really should know what Tim Tams are. They are- <laughs> They are Australia's gift to the world. Gonna, if, I, if I could go to an international candy store somewhere here in New York, I'm going to find them. Because <laughs> they look. I'll send you some, Caroline. If you give me your address, I will. I'm a Tim Tam ambassador. I love hearing that. It's amazing. <laughs> okay, so if you could talk about the title, because there are two different titles and three different covers, and the books cover the UK, the US and Australia. And I love all three of the covers, but there's something about that US cover and the font used. So I'm wondering if maybe that was, you know, the editors are like, yay, we got that right. But our cover, the US cover really grabbed me right away. Can you talk about what that's like for you to look at all three different covers and then the two different titles? Yeah, it's it's something really special about selling your book into more than one kind of territory. And sometimes, you know, authors get the same cover across the board, but I, I feel it's kind of like with children. I do love all my covers equally, but I, I, do, I do have a sort of special soft spot for my American cover because I think there's something about the font of Dirt Creek. It's almost like a hand-lettered sign, and I, I love the way that it's quite a flat image of, of, of a creek that looks exactly like what I had in mind. I was really astonished when it came back and I went, yes, that's what it looks like. I couldn't believe that sort of an, an American cover designer had had so accurately kind of found what the picture that was in my brain. And the story of the different titles is, so it's Dirt Town here in Australia, I think because, and this is my, my theory, but we uh, Wolf Creek was a big film here. It's about an Australian sort of psychopath who takes backpackers and kills them in the outback essentially. And it's kind of a cultural touchstone and I think Dirt Creek was too close to Wolf Creek for an Australian audience. Oh, okay. In the States, there was the very popular podcast S-Town. Do you remember? And yep. I think my my publisher in the US thought that there were sort of strong connotations 
that it almost sounded like a non-fiction book, that Dirt Town sounded like it would be a non-fiction book about a, a poor rural town in the US. And ultimately, you know, it was a long discussion. I can assure readers that we didn't enter into it lightly. But in the end, those were, that was the title that, that the different markets thought they could get behind. And I actually really love, I love Dirt Creek and I think it gives a resonance and kind of really subtly changes certain things about reading the book. It sort of, it, it, so much action does happen at Dirt Creek. And I should, I should explain. So Durton is the name of the town, D-U-R-T-O-N. And so the kids of the, of the town call it Dirt Town on the playground. That's kind of, and I sort of love that. I love those sort of nicknames that people come up with. And so by that logic, of course, Dirt, Durton Creek becomes Dirt Creek. And there are various important events in the book that happen there. Um, and I think it's sort of, without going into too much detail, it takes one storyline in particular and sort of really elevates it and makes it more maybe more central. But you have to read the book. Listen to the author. You have to read the book. Well, I liked all three covers, but I love the US cover. I think there's something really beautiful in this kind of, in the sort of almost pastel color scheme. And then this, this sort of washed, old looking photo. Uh, I think it really... Like I said, it was the closest visual representation in my head to what I had always imagined the cover would look like. Well, I think it's outstanding. They did a great job. Well, what about what you're working on next? And is there going to be a sequel to Dirt Creek? So I am happily working away on my next book. And I, I really had to make sure that I was quite a while into that before. I wanted to to get into that before this book came out because I know there is a danger that once you start talking about a book as a finished object and as a thing like, oh, of course, all along, it's all going to come together, you sort of lose that white knuckle. You know, it's really fear, actually. When you have to start a book and, you, and you're not sure how things are going to cohere, what it's all going to be about. So I'm really in that space of, of a first draft of the next novel that I will say is not a sequel to Dirt Creek. I might come back to Detective Sergeant Sarah Michaels one day, but I was kind of really interested in this story and interested in these characters already. So it was sort of too late by the time people started telling me, oh, I really love this book. And that's obviously lovely to hear. But I think what, what's exciting about this next book is it's not set in a small, dry country town in the same way. But I am endlessly interested in the ways we kind of define ourselves in relation to other people. And I think any kind of community you live in acts upon you. So it's a different kind of small community. And it, it's in a different place in Australia, but it's also still very grounded in nature. I'm very interested in the way that the outside world affects our kind of interior experience. So that's all I'll say for now. Um, hopefully that gives you a sense. And we'll read anything you write. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Carolyn, very sweet. I was just going to say that. I'm like, whatever it is, I'm reading it. <laughs> but the other nice thing about doing it that way, Haley, is that you can write something different. And if you want to come back to Sarah, you can, but then you're not just stuck in the series where everybody's expecting your next right. book is the, the next book in a series. I think Jane Harper was smart. She did the two, then she did some standalones. Now she's going back. So I think that's perfect. You position yourself to be able to do all sorts of things. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, any reader, myself included, thinking of myself as a reader, I want the author to write the book that has the most heat for them. I want them to to follow that line of of kind of electricity to to a point that that makes sense for them because i think you can you can feel when a book is is sort of pushed to beyond you know the the author's even own natural interest in the, in that topic you know for sure okay so we know that you're working on something next and we are thrilled to hear that and by the time this episode launches you will be on the US promotional train where can readers and listeners find some of your upcoming events 
my website is probably the best spot for, um, and I am doing some great events with US bookshops who are kind of having me on early in the morning, my time, but reasonable time um, for US listeners. But uh, yeah, my website's the best place to kind of see those as they come up, but also Instagram's the best place to find me. I'm Scrivener, and I'm always posting about what I've got coming up there. That's where I'm most busily procrastinating about writing the next book. <laughs> so you can often find me there. Okay, good. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Well, I am in, as I said, the first draft stage of the next book. And and while I'm while I was editing Dirt Creek, I spent a lot of time really immersing in kind of great plot and really reading a lot of wonderful crime. But when I'm in the first draft stage, I, I often read a lot of nonfiction. Um, and I read a lot of what I think of as like maximalist fiction. So I read writers who write these big, big, big books because there's something about just hanging out with with these big descriptions, even though I don't think I write that way at all. I think I, I really cut and cut and cut. That's sort of my – I like to to have the, the sort of barest line that I can. Um, so what I'm reading right now, what I pe- actually just picked up to look at and then started reading was A Little Life, oh. which is one of my all-time favourite books, and just rereading it. And it's sort of a painful experience, you know, particularly when you know I've read it a few times, um, but I still am endlessly swept away by by Hany Yanagihara's prose, and I and it makes me want to write. And I don't think I write anything like her, but it makes me want to engage with words in a way that's so kind of infectious. It just makes me really giddy. And I just read uh, Courtney Malm's The Year of the Horses. And I love the way she writes. I read, she wrote an excellent book about selling your book into the US that I was reading as we were pitching the book over there. But this book is, again, really different to what I'm writing, but it's so lovely to spend time in someone else's thought process. And I think the way Courtney Mom writes is funny and, and kind of welcomes you in and makes you ultimately feel less alone. So those are my kind of two recommendations. Love it. I, when I first, the first book I read by uh, Yanagihara was People in the Trees. Mm. And I had never read anything like that before. Yeah, she's a genius. I think she really is. She's outstanding and alone somewhere in this field by herself, you know. Yes, like symphony on a page. Great recommendations. Well, we'll put all of that information on our respective podcast pages. Haley Scrivener, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you. It's been such an unrivaled pleasure at my end. I really, really enjoyed talking about my book with you. Thank you for reading it so carefully and and so generously. It's really wonderful for a debut author to to reach readers in this way. So thank you. And there are things Cindy and I talked about we can't, we could talk to you about, we can't share anything with the listeners (laughs) about the things that we talked about because they'll just have to get there on their own. And listeners, we thank you so much for joining us today. Cindy, what a thrill once again to co-host an episode of Between Two Podcasts. It's such a blast and I am so grateful for you and I thank you. I always enjoy hosting with you as well. And Haley was the perfect guest. This was just wonderful. I don't think we can top it. No, I don't think so. Okay, so this is Carol Tack, host of Top Shelf at Merrick Library. Thank you all so much for listening. And this is Cindy Burnett, host of the Thoughts from a Page podcast, thanking you as well. Remember to follow both shows, Thoughts from a Page and Top Shelf at Merrick Library on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most podcasts. And we will see you all very soon. Thanks again, Haley. Thank you.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.